Hey, if you have a Bible, would you open up with me to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1? 2 Timothy chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. If you're new or you are uh, visiting with us, you picked a good Sunday to be here. We've been working through a series the past several weeks now uh, that we've titled Core, where we're just going back and looking at the core values of our church, the things that we uh, aspire to be, the, the values that we uphold, the, the ambitions that, that drive us forward as a, as a people that we want to uh, see lived out in the shape and form of our community here at Living Hope. And so uh, if you're new, again, this is a great time. If you're joining us online, welcome as well. This is a great time for you to see what we're about and also to hear uh, hopefully what we, what we long to be as a church. Um, and, and if Living Hope has been your church for any amount of time, this is a good refresher for us to kind of come back to ground zero and say, okay, as the fall starts and as we start moving in a particular direction, th- these are the things that we're going to uh, seek to, to enliven even within our, our experience here at Living Hope. By the way we gather, by the way we, we do groups at Living Hope, which is what we're talking about today, the value of community. And even the way that we're sent out into the world in mission, which is what we'll look at next week. But uh, the first two weeks, we talked about two real key components of, of, of how we wrap our minds around the value of, of church here at Living Hill. We talked about uh, discipleship, kind of gave you an important definition then that I'm going to reference again today. Discipleship is the relational connection that we have with one another and with the Lord that is vital, dare I say, essential for us to be the people that God has called us to be. Or in other words, uh, it's impossible to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and to do so in isolation. And we must be connected to one another. The majority of the New Testament has built up within it all of these commands that we do certain things with one another. We love one another. We're patient with one another. We're kind to one another. We confess our sins one to another. We bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. And on and on and on I could go. And all of those experiences, all those one another's are what we're talking about when we talk about this idea of discipleship. I'm walking alongside you, you walk alongside me as we both walk alongside King Jesus and we're formed in these relationships. And then last week we talked about the centrality of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, how Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of that which is of, is of first importance, that, that, that Jesus lived our life, died our death, that he rose on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, the priority of the Bible, the priority of the church, the, the hope of the church, the lifeblood of the church is bound up in this good news message. And it's not just something we believe, it's something we embody, it's something that we practice as we remind ourselves of the good news. We begin to form a gospel culture, a way of dealing with one another, relating with one another that that exemplifies the good news of grace that we have received. Uh, We're going to drill down one layer further than that today and talk about this value of community and why it's so important to us, kind of really taking those first two constructs, discipleship and the gospel word, and showing what happens when those two things are combined in the context of relationships, that a very particular way of being with one another emerges. And I picked today, or selected today, 2 Timothy, because in many ways, this is the most intimate of all of Paul's letters in the New Testament. Uh, Paul, the, the apostle, has written now to uh, his protege in ministry, the, the, the pastor he has left behind, perhaps in Ephesus, to lead the church there. This is his second letter. The first letter was very much a how-to letter. It was very much a, hey, Timothy, I left you there to do certain things, to put certain things in place. And so he gives him more, you know, like a general charge. You got you to have elders, you got to have deacons, you got to take care of the widows. Uh, Timothy, you got to guard the good deposit of the gospel. And now Paul writes a second time because that last charge, guard that good deposit of the gospel, that's perhaps under threat. Not only that, Paul is in prison and he knows that his days are numbered. This letter ends with 
some of the most heartfelt, intimate words from the apostle that we have in all of the New Testament because he says, I've run the good, the good race. I've fought the good fight. I've, I've kept the faith. There's now stored up for me. I'm being poured out as a drink offering. There's now stored up for me the crown of righteousness. He's preparing to, to see and be with Jesus. But I think we have something in the intimacy of Paul and Timothy's relationship that, that we can extract from this letter this morning and see what it could be for the church to embody community in a way that reflects the good news of the gospel. I used to teach this in my early years of pastoral ministry. It's sort of, again, like a how-to for pastoral ministry. Paul tells Timothy to do certain things, so pastors should do these certain things. And I think that's a fair assessment of what's happening here. But, as we'll see in just a moment, whenever you get into the nitty-gritty of how this letter begins and how this letter ends, you see the, uh, the prototype of community. That this relationship that Paul has with Timothy, that Timothy has with Paul, it is the definition of discipleship. And there's some attributes about this relationship. There's some qualities and some commitments in this relationship that I want to hold up for us today. And maybe hopefully, uh, hopefully we can see this as this is what God calls us to as a local church as well. 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Actually, let's just jump into verse 3. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors. With a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, and as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This is the word of the Lord. You may have seen it last week. The World Health Organization kind of released some statistics of the latter half of 2022 and the beginning of 2023 uh, as it pertains to health in America. And it dealt specifically with, with mental health. And so there were a few records that we set in that time span as, as a nation. Uh, it's the highest levels of depression that, that have, have ever been recorded uh, in America. It's the highest uh, levels of, of suicide, most suicides we've, we've ever had. Uh, and what is now being called the loneliness epidemic has reached proportions that, the, that sociologists and health officials thought was not possible before. We're more lonely. Um, we're more depressed uh, we're, we're, we're really falling apart as a people, it seems. At the same time, uh, marriage rates have never been lower. Birth rates have never been lower. Um, and, and yet we're still wealthy. So, so there's this, and by the way, I don't mean to start in such dire, you know, morbid sort of statistics, but it is something I want to wrestle with this morning. We've, we've got to consider this. Life as we know it, life expectancy has gone down for the first time in, in America since the creation of the nation. What is, what is happening? And why all of a sudden does it seem that these things are beginning to unravel? Now, please don't hit the caution button. Don't begin to panic. I'm not going to get into political things this morning. That, that's, not, that's not my point here. My point is that I think in this particular moment that we find ourselves in, a, a time when people are more lonely than ever, more depressed than ever, more suicidal than ever, where, man, it, it, things have gotten hard, then the church that has this very specific calling, to, to be a particular people, and not just to be a people, but to be a people together, that gathers together, that, that eats together, that, that enjoys company with one another. The church, maybe perhaps more than any other time in our nation's history, has an opportunity 
to truly model what, we, what it is we say we believe, to really put into practice the, the, the attributes and the qualities of the people of God for a people who are, I know no better word for it, desperate for it right now, for a world that is aching and longing to see real genuine community and relationship, real concern for one another, real empathy towards one another, real practice of, of human, human beings being what they were designed by God to be for one another. Now, uh, as, I, as I said last week, last week I really debated on whether or not I would uh, pull from one text or another. The same thing was true this week. I could have taken us back to, to Acts chapter 2, a real formative passage that we've talked about a lot at Living Hope, where we get this snapshot at, at the conclusion of the second chapter of the book of Acts, where the people of God are filled with the Holy Spirit, where the apostle P- Peter has preached the message, and thousands are baptized. And, and Luke records there at the end of Acts chapter 2 that the, the the church committed to certain things. They committed to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, and to the prayers. And they shared with one another. Anyone who was in need, they, they came forward. Stuff was laid at the apostles' feet so they could distribute the proceeds and take care of one another. And God was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. I could have used that passage, but I didn't. I didn't for a specific reason, because sometimes that gets idealized in such a way as to where we think that should be the normative function and feature of the church. And there's some attributes of that I think that should always be happening. But I picked 2 Timothy for a reason, because Timothy's in a bad spot. Timothy's in a church that appears to be fracturing and falling apart. There's conflict. There are wolves, Paul talks about. People are in love with self and in love with the world. They're they're resisting Timothy's message. They're rejecting his leadership. Timothy's afraid. He's insecure, perhaps. We'll see that in just a second. Timothy's questioning his faith lineage, perhaps, because his dad's out of the picture. And like anyone who grew up without a dad can say, it's hard when you start trying to lead people and you've grown up without a dad around. Not only that, Paul's about to die. That's, that's not up for debate. Paul knows he's about to die, and we know from history he's about to die. So this letter is, face, is meeting the church at a time when it's not the idealized situation. It's hard. Things are difficult. And in the midst of that, we begin to see, I think, a snapshot of what community could be. Again, a prototype of what if we were for one another, what we're called to be in this moment when leadership is hard, when you're especially anxious and insecure, when you're afraid, you may be dying soon. What are the things we can learn about community in that set of circumstances that could inform the way we practice community in our present day? A, a, a day that's not filled with as much light seems like it's more darkness. So I want to do two things this morning, and I'm kind of going to preach all of Second Timothy. I've had three cups of coffee to get ready for this. I'll just be honest with y'all. <laughs> We're going to go chapter one to chapter four. I'm going to kind of hit the high points. But we're going, to look at, we're going to find two things here. First thing we're going to see are the attributes of genuine community. If there's some things about Paul and Timothy's relationship that I really want to highlight, that I really want to bring up to the surface for us to examine, to say, hey, let's pay attention to this because this is unique and this is different, those attributes. And then I want to show you, hopefully, how those attributes are connected to the commitments that Paul and Timothy had, both to their relationship with Jesus and their relationship with one another. In other words, these attributes of community are the, are the, the fruit and, and these commitments are the root. These commitments happen to make this sort of community come to be and to, and to flourish. And so we're going to skate along the surface of this letter and hopefully draw these things out so that we can see them, behold them, and then even maybe be shaped by them this morning. First off, the attributes of community. The first thing that I'm struck by when I read this letter beginning to end, and I would encourage you all sometime today, just sit down and read. You can probably read the whole letter in less than 20 minutes. It's a quick read. 
But the first thing I'm struck by is how honest Paul is with Timothy, that their relationship was marked by honesty. Now, when I say honesty, I'm not talking about the opposite of falsehood. I'm not saying Paul's telling the truth instead of lying. What I mean by honesty is that honesty is not, the, in this sense, the antithesis of, of falsehood. Honesty is, is being compared to superficiality. All right, Paul very well could have written Timothy the second letter and said, look, bro, I told you the first time to do these things, and now I've, I've received word that you're kind of waffling in a few areas. Here's three quick things I want you to do. Guard the good deposit, chase off the false teachers, and send me my stuff. This letter could have been really short. He could have written it that way. He could have talked to him as an authoritative figure to a lesser figure, but he doesn't. In fact, he starts in a way that is ruggedly honest, if it is anything at all. He begins with, hey, Timothy, we just saw this. I thank God for you. As I remember your tears, I long to see you. Let's just think about that. Think about that in modern 21st century American suburban culture. How many men do you know that look at other men and go, hey, bro, when I think about you crying, I want to hang. I mean, it's a little bit odd, but there's something about it that's ruggedly honest. Paul says, let's talk about your family history. The faith that you have that came from your grandmother, Eunice, and now your mother, Lois, that's real faith. So he's getting into the details of, of, of this dude's backstory. He knows him. And that honesty is, is pointed and directed at some very specific things. He's honest about his emotions. Paul talks about it here. He says, I was hurt. He gets below the surface. He's not just talking about getting the, the work of the church done. He says, Timothy, I long to see you. There's, there's a language of desire here. He talks about people who have left them, people who have deserted them. He talks about the way that it affected him emotionally. He talks about Timothy crying. I mean, th this is an honest look at, at what genuine community looks like. There's language about emotion. Paul has to tell Timothy, look, man, you're going to have to flee your youthful passions you have some desires and some drives that are innate in you because of your age, because you're, because you're a guy, and you're going to have to run from those things. Paul says, look, the, emotion level, the emotional maturity level of the church is off kilter. There are people in Ephesus who are in love with self and in love with this present world. Their affections are misdirected. So Paul's honest about that. Not only that, he's honest that, that he needs some things. He sends Timothy a shopping list of sorts. He says, hey, man, I need you to go get some stuff for me. I'm in prison. I don't have access to these things. Jump over real quick to chapter 4. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 9 of chapter 4, Paul says, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Do you feel the emotion of that? 
You see the honesty in that. Paul says, look, man, I'm in prison. Everyone's left me. I only got Luke here. And if we know anything about the way the book of Acts is written and the way the, the gospel of Luke is written, Luke, is, he likes to write. He's got those really long chapters that are like 90 verses long. And so I think Paul may, in fact, this is speculation. Paul may be saying, hey, all I got here is the nerd who wants to write all the time. I need some relationship. <laughs> Luke's over here talking about medical stuff. He's a doctor. I don't want to, you know, give me someone else. Send Mark. Mark, who he's had conflict with. At least send me that guy. He's useful. No, he, but then he goes on a, a list. He says, look, I need, the, I need my cloak. We'll see at the end of the letter, Paul says, do this before winter comes. Why? Because it's cold and I need my coat. He's honest about the stuff that he needs. He's honest about his hurts. He says, Demas left us for the world. Alexander the coppersmith, he wounded me. You need to avoid him as well. He's honest about, about his disappointments in, chapters, in, in chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Read that again when you get home. When I went to my defense, no one stood by me. Everyone deserted me. I say all that to say this letter reveals a level of relationship that's probably foreign to our, our modern church experience. In fact, it may make some of us uncomfortable. Can you imagine being in this sort of relationship with people you go to church with? I hope so. That's the point. The point is, is that the people of God, in order for us to have a, a vitality about our faith, in order for the things that we profess to believe about the person of Jesus to be, in some ways, understood, if not, if not believed by the outside world, we've got to engage one another at this level of honesty. There's got to be a depth of relationship that a, a, a desperate, lonely, literally dying world has to look at and say, I don't know what they got going on over there, but I want in on that. They're not superficial. It's not a facade. It's not a game they're playing. They're not dressing up religi religiosity so they can feel more significant or righteous than other people. They're honest about their fears. They're honest about their hurts. They're honest about their disappointments. They're honest about their emotional health. That's the sort of relationship Paul and Timothy had with one another. And I think it's an attribute of genuine community. And it exists, I think, for both of them because of the second quality, which is dependability. Dependability. Paul, um, we know that Paul, he encounters Timothy in, um, in, in, in Troas, I think, or, or maybe it's Dalmatia. I can't remember. But in, in Acts chapter 16, Paul uh, happened in Lystra, that's where it was. Paul happens upon Timothy there. And Timothy's dad, we know, is a Greek and his mom is a Jew. So he's, he's biracial in a world where that's not thought to be a good quality at that time. And, 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 and so he takes him along with him. And, and we know that they develop, immediately develop, a very um, reciprocal relationship where Paul depends on Timothy and Timothy depends on Paul. And, and we know that that's the case because Paul says things in both 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy that, that highlights the fact that he believes Timothy to be something very specific. It's a really important word for community. He believes him to be faithful. He's dependable and he is faithful. He does what Paul asks him to do. We see this, for instance, in chapter 2, uh, verses 1 and 2. Paul says to Timothy there, he says, You then, my child, which is one of his designations, we'll talk about that more in just a minute, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Paul models faithfulness for Timothy. He shows him what it tangibly looks like to follow Jesus into the world, to carry forth the mission and the calling that he had received. And then he asked Timothy to do what he's shown him to do and to do it with and for other men who will be faithful to do that as well. And this is, in a sense, discipleship boiled down to its barest essence. I'll be faithful to you. 
you've been faithful to me. You take that faithfulness and you, 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 you leverage it into the lives of other people you deem to be faithful. So they will be faithful to do the same thing as well. And this relationship then is marked by this faithfulness. In fact, in chapter 3, Paul tells Timothy, look, you've seen this before. You know how to act because I modeled it for you. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Just just a, a cursory observation from that list. I mean, that, that, there's a lot there that Paul says he modeled for Timothy. It wasn't just that, hey, man, I showed up and I taught and I told you the truth. Now go do it. No, there's more to it than that. He says, Timothy, you followed how patient I was, which means that in Paul's life, he had to be in experiences and be in circumstances where he could demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit is, in fact, patient so Timothy could see how to act in those situations. He says, my love. So so Paul's affections for the lost, his affections for the world, his affections for others, he demonstrated that love to Timothy for him to follow. My aim in life, he showed him what ambition looks like. There was a fidelity in in, in their relationship that, that led to dependability. He could depend on Timothy, Timothy could depend on him. Now, if I know anything about ministry in a church context like the one that we have here, I know that it can be really hard to lean into other people and consider them dependable. Why? Well, mostly because we've all overextended our schedule such that there's no way we could show people what it looks like to be patient because we're not patient. We've got so much going on. We're running from one thing to the next. We could never demonstrate faithfulness to one another because we can't fit it into our calendars. So at the very forefront, this challenges the very fabric of the way we do life in these parts. We're going to have to slow down. We're going to have to reconsider what is most important. We're going to have to look at someone who we could say, your aim in life should be my aim in life. Your ambition looks like the ambition I want to have. I've told you all before, the reason I'm a pastor, the reason I'm a disciple of Jesus is that I had a grown man, a pastor in my life that I said, I want to be like you when I grow up. And he was Paul and I was Timothy. And I followed him around for about three years doing everything he told me to do. If he said, man, you take out the trash to little honor Jesus, I was taking out the trash. Like I was like... I want to be like you one day. Show me what I need to do now. And had it not been for that sort of relationship, I don't know if I'd still be following Jesus. I don't know if I'd still be in love with the local church. Someone modeled for me a particular aim in life, demonstrated for me the fruit of the Spirit in real time so that I could see this is what it looks like to be faithful to Jesus and faithful in the church. And when we do that for one another, when faithfulness and dependability are attributes that we hold on to, we develop trust. And trust is essential for the local church. Trust is being eroded by the minute these days. We don't know who to believe or what to believe. We're inundated with all sorts of mixed messages about what is true and what isn't true. And if we can't find trust in the local church, I don't know if we'll be able to find it anywhere. But Paul, because of his fidelity to Timothy and Timothy because of his faithfulness and dependability to Paul, have developed this bond of trust whereby they can be honest with one another, where they can talk about hurts. Which leads to really the third attribute that we see here that doesn't exist without trust and without honesty, and that's the attribute of uh, of vulnerability. Paul can be a little bit exposed. He can say, Timothy, I was hurt. And Timothy, there's some people who did us great harm. Timothy, I need some things. Timothy, I need you to do some things for me. He can be vulnerable and ask those things. Take on the risk that he could be hurt by Timothy. Why? 
Because he believes the hope of the gospel. Because he knows that Jesus has saved and rescued Timothy. Because he believes that he's been called to this. Therefore, Paul is, is vulnerable. In fact, look back again at the passage that we read in verse 1. And think about this. Paul says in verse 3, he says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. And I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Paul begins to cover Timothy's tears and perhaps his shame with the grace and mercy of Jesus himself. He knows where Timothy is vulnerable. He knows that perhaps he's insecure. He knows that he's anxious. He knows that he's afraid. But rather than saying, hey, man, don't be chicken. Don't be weak. Don't be scared. He says, look, man, I want to validate the faith you have, even if it did come from your grandma and your mom. And I know your dad's not in your life, so I'm going to call you my beloved child. And Timothy, I know that you're exposed in these ways, and I know there are people who are out to get you. But I want to offer encouragement. He highlights the ways that he's gifted. He talks about those anxieties and fears being compensated with by, by the power and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. What if we had these sorts of relationships with one another? What if when we did see someone who was exposed and who was vulnerable, we sought to cover their shame with truth and with encouragement and with hope rather than pointing it out, laughing about it, using it to one-up with one another, evaluate one another, critique one another? Those aren't in the New Testament. What if instead our vulnerabilities were something that we, we knew about, but yet we wanted to see the true mercy and grace of the Lord cover those things in each other's life? Think of the world-altering implications of a church so committed to re relating to one another in these ways. In a world that's aching with loneliness and isolation, in a, lo a world that's desperate to know what's true and right and good and beautiful, what if we could treat each other this way? That's the picture that we see in this particular community. Now, how did it happen? Because I'll be honest, y'all, I think it takes a miracle for this to happen. That's why I can't just say, here's the attributes that Paul and Timothy had. They were honest, they were dependable, they were vulnerable with one another. Go and do likewise. I think it takes a miracle. But the good news of the gospel is, we have that miracle. There are certain commitments that, they are, that, that, seem to, that cause these roots to sink deep so that these sorts of relationships uh, become normative for them. Become, become the way that they operate, the way they live and move and have their being. The first commitment that we see, if we were to read all the letter today, is that they're committed to gospel centrality, what we talked about last week. At the forefront of Paul's relationship with Timothy is the truth and the hope of the gospel. Timothy, guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. Timothy, he says, down in, I think it is in like verse 11, where he says, look, I, I know in whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him until that day. Timothy, all of this is rooted in the person of Jesus, and I believe in him, and he's going to keep it for me. He's going to do this. It's the root of gospel centrality that leads to the fruit of these sorts of relationships. Tim Chester writes about this in his book, Everyday Church. He says, what forms and sustains Christian community is, perhaps paradoxically, not a commitment to community per se, but a commitment to the gospel word. Sometimes people place a big emphasis on the importance of community and they neglect the gospel. Community then becomes a goal toward which we work. 
But Peter says in 1 Peter, such human activity cannot create life that endures. An exclusive focus on community will kill community. It is only the word of God that creates an enduring community life and love. The Christian community demonstrates the effectiveness of the gospel. We are living proof that this gospel is not an empty word, but a powerful word. It takes men and women who are lovers of self and transforms them by grace through the Spirit into people who love God and others. We are living proof that the death of Jesus was not a vain expression of God's love, but an effective death that achieved the salvation of a people who now love one another sincerely and from a pure heart. That's why the gospel's got to stay at the center of all that we do and all that we say. We can't attain these sorts of relationships apart from it. Paul's relationship with Timothy is a commitment to the gospel. And it leads them to both have something that's essential for this sort of a community to emerge. They have a secure identity. They're not insecure. That's what Paul's talking about. He's got these insecurities that he sees in Timothy, perhaps related to his faith being passed down from his, his mom and his grandmom. He has these insecurities perhaps of being timid or being afraid. And Paul says, look, no, you have a rooted identity. You are a beloved child. Paul knows who he is. He opens up the letter this way. I'm Paul, an apostle, by, by the will of God himself. In verse 11, God made me a teacher and an apostle and a preacher. I know who I am, and I know in whom I have believed. And Timothy, you are a beloved child, and you have genuine faith. And Timothy, you're gifted. So the foundation of this community is, is their secure identity in the person of Jesus. Because they're united to Jesus in a life like his, because of the death of Jesus on their behalf, then they can be rooted in these identities, and that gives vitality to the community itself. In other words, the best thing you and I can do for the vitality of community at Living Hope is to be rooted in our identity in Jesus Christ, to know in whom we have believed, and to be persuaded that he alone is able to take that which we've committed and keep it until that faithful day. Which then leads, I think, to their third commitment. They practice a generous reciprocity. What in the world does that mean? What is a generous reciprocity? It means that Paul and Timothy's relationship was a two-way street. They're, they, they, they're leaning into and depending upon one another for certain things. It's not just that there's the, the highly enlightened one speaking down to the unenlightened one. There's, there's things going both ways. There, there's give and take. There's blessing and commitment. There's grace and truth. And, and that's, that's obvious because there's a, there's a generosity of their spirit. Paul doesn't chastise Timothy for his tears. He doesn't call him out for his insecurities. He doesn't blame him for, uh, for not showing up at his trial. Likewise, Timothy looks to Paul as a mentor and a teacher and a father figure despite his suffering and the shame that Paul has received for suffering. There's a huge reservoir of grace that they have reserved for one another. They then dump onto each other this massive amount of grace. Genuine community can only exist in an environment where we're, where we're generous to one another in spirit and Christ-likeness. That's why Paul would tell the church in Ephesus, the church in Colossae, look, you've got to forgive one another. Even as God has forgiven you in Christ Jesus, so also forgive one another. Put up with one another out of reverence for Christ because of what God has done for you. Because, like we talked about last week, that humble confidence is only available in the gospel. We were so wicked that Jesus had to live our life and die our death, but we were so loved he was willing to do it. When you really get that down into your bones, you can look at other people who are failing, other people with insecurities and anxieties and weaknesses and say, I don't count it against you. You didn't show up at my trial, but God stood with me, as Paul would say. So that's it, y'all. That's, that's what we're hopeful for. That's what we aspire to. That's our ambition. I want to give you three parting words, and I promise these are going to be fast. Three things I want you to do with this this morning. 
First off, if you're here today and you're not in community at Living Hope, you haven't connected in any significant way, you just kind of come on Sunday. That's great. We're, we're glad that you're here. We want you to take the next step. You can get into men's or women's Bible study. Sign-ups are happening. You can get on that website and see those now. More importantly, we want you to get into a community group. Because community groups have at their heart this, this picture, this model, this ideal that we just looked at. And the way you can do that is there's two ways. Today, when you walk out, there will be people. Derek will give you some more info on this later. There will be people in the lobby with a name tag on who want to get you in a group today. That's one way. Second way, September 10th, we're going to start a community group launch class. It's going to last for three weeks. You can get all the details about that on our website. I would invite you to do that. If, if it's a little bit weird to commit today, then at least commit by September 10th. Secondly, if you are in community at Living Hope, I'm just going to ask you to simply do this. Take this stuff seriously, but give a lot of grace. Give a lot of grace. If we all go back to our groups today and we're like, hey, you've never been vulnerable with me. Tell me your sins right now. If we go back to our groups and we say, you know what? I don't know if you're really dependable. If we go back to our groups and we say, you know what? There's no generous reciprocity. I'm doing all the work and you're doing nothing. That would be an epic fail, as the kids say. Don't do that. The way that this gets embodied and lived out is, is what Bill Christian taught us a long time ago in small groups here at Living Hope. Bill celebrated 17 years in leading in our church this last week. And I told him, he's got some Billisms. You work with someone long enough, you get some of those. One of my favorite things Bill taught our groups, though, and continues to teach even this day, I'm going to give you the gift of going second. In other words, a leader leads by saying, I'll go first. I'll model this. I'll demonstrate this. And that's what it looks like in community. Community's messy. Community's hard. Th these are ideals. It's going to be really hard to get there. I've seen glimpses of it in my experience at Living Hope, but someone's going to have to go first. And we got to be like Paul who says, you know what? I'm a little bit disappointed. No one showed up at my trial, but I don't count it against them because that's what grace does. And lastly, I would just say this morning, if you are lonely, if you are isolated, if you feel alone, if you are hurting, we want to pray for you. We don't want you to feel that weight. Isolation is at an all-time high, as we said in the beginning. I don't want you to dwell on that too long today, but I do want you to say... I need help. And so in just a moment when we conclude, there'll be some men and women available out these doors. They can step in the room next door with you and just pray with you today. Just treat you like the human being you are and give you the grace that you need because that's what Jesus died for. So Father, today would you form us? Would you shape us as your people? Would you embody the gospel in the way that we interact with one another by your spirit? Lead us to be a people committed to the gospel, committed to one another who are dependable, faithful, and vulnerable in all the things, because that's what you've been for us in Jesus. We gather around his table now as your people, marked by his life, his death, and his resurrection. As you remind us of that, Lord, compel us to be that for one another as well. In Jesus' name, amen.